is an Odyssey original. This is Coronavirus Daily. I'm Charles Feldman. I'm Mike Simpson from the KNX Odyssey Studios in Los Angeles. Doctors, scientists in South Africa sounded the alarm over the Omicron variants as soon as they could. Sparked fear and worry around the world. The variants could be the worst one yet. Finding out that might not be true. New data shows the vaccines, at least the Pfizer vaccine, could be mostly holding up, especially if you've gotten a booster shot. Killing COVID could be like walking and chewing gum at the same time. The U.S. Surgeon General issuing a public health advisory on mental health and teens. Let's start with Omicron and the vaccines. Dr. Sabra Klein is a professor of immunology and microbiology at Johns Hopkins School of Public Health. Doctor, what can you tell us about this research? Okay, so what, what, you know, what the data coming out of Pfizer and there are other data that came out of South Africa um, showing that in order for the vaccines, including the Pfizer vaccine, to be protective against this new variant of concern called Omicron, we the, the immunity is best following the booster. So those of us who have only ever been vaccinated and have never been sick with COVID, if you are an adult, the answer is go get your booster because it's following the booster that there's adequate neutralization, um, uh, preventing a virus from infecting cells. You want that neutralizing antibody and we have sufficient neutralizing antibody after the booster. So getting the booster, I think the other thing that's been shown coming out of South Africa where vaccine rates are considerably lower than they are for us here in the United States, is that for anyone who has only been infected, you don't have sufficient antibody to protect against Omicron, but in individuals who have been infected and vaccinated, they have sufficient antibody. So I think, you know, the the answer, the solution, the only control that we as individuals have against this new variant is to ensure that we're vaccinated. And if we are in a population for whom booster doses are available and recommended, please go get it, even if you've been infected previously. Okay, so we hope that the good news so far holds, and this actually is is borne out through all the data, but the why would be what? That the the big jump in antibodies and, and the big ramp up that you get after your third shot is enough to counter the differences with Omicron and the differences, you know, previously with Delta and all of that? I mean, it's a simplification because the immune system's complicated, but is that kind of the gist of it? That is, that is the gist of it. You got it completely. Um, in this moment, without fully knowing all the correlates of protection, more is better. So if we can boost appropriately our, our immunity, um, you're going to be better protected against these variants. There's going to be some antibody in your body that recognizes Omicron and can protect you. Now, but, and- but we should point out, right, that all this uh, material that came out today uh, from Pfizer, this is in the laboratory. It, it, so it could be different, better or worse, right, in the so-called real world. Absolutely. Such an important observation. And my hope is that it will be better um, because what we, what, what all of us have, in addition to these antibody responses that we're all measuring in our laboratories, you have other types of responses, including responses by other cells called T cells. 
that do that are not as affected um, by the mutations occurring in these variants, and that might be very good at protecting us. Um, but but this all requires that we have some level of exposure and that we're not completely naive, and that includes our children. So you know anybody who is eligible to get vaccinated and who has not been infected um, needs to go get vaccinated. This is this is our best mode for protecting. Um, all of us, including, you know, the people who are at greatest risk for severe disease, whether it's from Delta or now from Omicron, which are our older adults, our pregnant people, anyone who's immunocompromised because of having an autoimmune disease, cancer, or a solid organ transplant. Um, you know, so I really want to emphasize that we, we also don't know how well their immune responses are. So it's up to the rest of us to do what we can to protect them. Dr. Sabra Klein teaches and researches in immunology and microbiology at Johns Hopkins School of Public Health. What if you could prevent COVID by chewing gum? Even those who are hesitant about the vaccine could get on board with that. New research finds that gum can kill coronavirus in a person's mouth, a very special kind of gum. Dr. Henry Daniel, vice chair and professor of the Department of Translational Sciences at the University of Pennsylvania School of Dental Medicine. Dr. Gum and COVID explain how those go together. Yeah, it is kind of sounds uh, unusual, but this gum is like any other cinnamon flavored gum, except that. Uh, it has one additional protein. It's a viral trap protein. This protein is present in our saliva naturally, but it's not enough. So this protein, the virus binds to this protein and dominates this protein. And by blocking this protein, it has free entry into human cells. What we have done is make the chewing gum with this protein, which is naturally present in human saliva and human blood. And this does two things. One, by binding, it traps the SARS-CoV-2, the virus of COVID-19 disease in the gum. And the ones that escape the gum, which is not trapped, it goes and blocks the gate of entry because the virus and the enzyme uses the same gate to enter human cells. So is this to prevent me, hopefully, from, you know, spitting out some COVID? Or is it to prevent me from breathing in some COVID if my mouth is open and I walk through a cloud of COVID germs? Both. Actually, the COVID-19 disease symptoms um, are manifested by the viral load. By decreasing the viral load, you decrease the disease severity and therefore decreases someone going to the hospital. So decreasing the virus decreases the symptoms because you are not swallowing the virus again and again. The virus replicates in the salivary glands. So that's its primary site of multiplication. So you control the virus at the source. At the same time, People who are asymptomatic, who don't know that they are infected, even those vaccinated who get breakthrough infections have the same level of viral load like the unvaccinated. When they speak, they spread the virus within the family when they don't wear the mask. 
And so this one, by dramatically reducing the viral load, it prevents transmission. So it does both. It helps the those who are infected, and at the same time, it helps those who are around the infected individuals. Now, one of the things, though, that, and help me out, I'm a little confused about, because I know that there are other researchers that are trying to develop nasal sprays uh, to combat COVID because they say, well, uh, the virus makes its home in the in the nasal cavity. But your uh, gum, of course, is in the oral cavity. So uh, is there are there two homes in which the virus tends to to uh, uh, germinate? You are absolutely correct. Very smart question. Yes. Actually, the virus enters through the nose. And the disease is less severe in the upper lung, more severe in the lower lung. So that is one path of entry. The other path of entry is oral. And there are both ways of entry, but then even if the virus enters through the nose and gets into circulation, it still comes back to the saliva for replication. So ultimately, the predominant uh, source of replication is the salivary glands, but point of entry is both the nose and the mouth. Dr. Okay, Henry. But the important question, you didn't ask the important question here. Can you blow bubbles with, <laughs> with this? We got that it was cinnamon flavored. <laughs> yeah, we got that. Can you blow bubbles with it? Yes or no? <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Dr. Henry Daniel, Vice Chair, Professor in the Department of Basic and Translational Sciences at the University of Pennsylvania. I also love how, you know, this was a great textbook example of the different questions that you and I ask. Yours is, isn't there two homes for the virus in the nasal cavity? And mine is like, are you out here spitting COVID all over the streets? <laughs> That's the show, folks. Yeah. <laughs> Coming up after this short break, American teens in the middle of a major mental health crisis. A public health advisory has been issued by the U.S. Surgeon General because of the mental health challenges that teens and kids are facing. Yeah, this is about depression and anxiety in kids. It doubles during the pandemic. Dr. Joshua Gordon, director of the National Institute of Mental Health within the NIH. Uh, doctor, the Surgeon General used the term devastating effects. Is, is that where we're at? Yeah, I think that's where we're at. Uh, another statistic for you, 140,000 kids across the United States lost a caregiver some point during the pandemic. So, yeah, devastating. So what is the country doing about it? Well, we're doing a lot of things. First of all, there's a lot of heroic uh, first-line mental health care providers who are out there giving treatment to these kids. Uh, there are a number of uh, hotlines and other services uh, that are seeing a lot of action, a lot of contacts from, from kids to try to get them the help they need. Uh, and, uh, and so we're responding as best we can. The country's also dedicating additional funds through the Substance Use and Mental Health Service Administration and additional research funds to try to make sure we understand how best to deal with it. Do we have definitive reasons or is it pretty much on a case-by-case -case basis in some of these, I mean, you mentioned loss of a caregiver. We've been in and are still in the pandemic. We have all these other pressures on teens that maybe weren't there in this kind of fashion in, in years past. Yeah, I mean, in addition to that, of course, uh, kids have been uh, virtual for uh, parts uh, of the past year, if not much of it for some kids. They haven't been seeing their friends, their family. And, uh, and we see correlations between 
what children report in terms of depression and anxiety and their ability to connect with their peers, their ability to connect with their family members uh, that they normally rely on. And that's, that has a positive side as well. Children who are better able to connect to parental figures, to mentors, to friends uh, through the pandemic, virtually or in person, have done better. Are there signs, uh, clinical signs, that parents should be alert to? What are they? Yeah, I mean, they're the same as before the pandemic. You want to look out for children who are withdrawing, children who are uh, experiencing a downturn in terms of their grades or their participation in extracurricular activities, their interest in seeing their friends. Uh, and uh, of course, you want to be alert for expressions of the suicidality if a child says, uh, you know, life isn't worth living or uh, I'm thinking of hurting myself. That's that's an that's an urgent need you need to deal with right away. But uh, while I understand what you're saying, that it's sort of the same signs as before the pandemic, there are some key differences, as you yourself just pointed out. I mean, you know, a lot of kids have been spending a lot of time at home. Uh, they're not necessarily seeing their friends. So the issue about whether they're they're you know partying with their friends uh, may not be <laughs> may, may not be so relevant now. So so are there subtle differences, perhaps? Yeah, I think uh, you know now you want to pay attention to what your kids are if they are doing online, if they are socializing online, or if they are uh, doing something that's more isolating. Um, you also want to watch out for other things like changes in uh, irritability or sleep patterns. Um, those are also signs of depression and anxiety in children that one can watch out for. We hear a couple different sides. And the first is, you know what, it's great that we have all these apps and we have Zoom and everything because you can connect with people that um, you maybe couldn't because we were locked down for a while. So that's all wonderful. But at the end of the day, does it not satisfy in the same way as as you know an actual personal relationship i mean a kid can have a bunch of instagram friends or or whatever it is um but you know you're a neurobiologist so is it in the brain the same kind of thing or is it because it's a an online facade it's just it's not it's not there well um, of course it's not the same thing and we also know human touch is really powerful for social connectedness in in and also for brain development so no it's not the same However, what really matters is not so many, not, not so much uh, how many relationships one has online, but the quality of those relationships. We have seen uh, data that shows that strong, supportive relationships, even if they are predominantly online, can be helpful for children. Uh, while a, a lot of, of, of uh, a, a large number of relationships that don't have that same quality uh, are not as helpful. As I think we all know, the uh, pandemic is has become uh, regrettably so politicized. Uh, and I'm wondering if there's any evidence that that in and of itself is having an impact on the mental health of, of kids. Well, I would say um, the degree to which politicization and other social factors have contributed to our uh, the challenges we've had in controlling the pandemic, yes, absolutely, because as the longer the pandemic lasts, the more severe, the more people get sick, the more people die, the larger the effects. And those communities that have been hit hardest by the pandemic are precisely the communities where you see higher levels of distress, be it anxiety, depression, or worse. No matter who you are, what age you are, is there still a reluctance among a lot of people to either go and ask for help or, or even open themselves to the idea of like, hey, maybe a therapist is not a terrible thing and it's not shameful and I should go get one. Maybe we should all have shrinks. 
I think there is some resistance uh, to that still uh, compared to say seeking out help for other medical illnesses. Uh, but we are seeing, especially amongst young people, greater acceptance of the notion that we, uh, that people have uh, mental health challenges, mental health problems, and that reaching out for help, be it to a professional or to some other um, adult that one uh, can rely on and trust, uh, I think we're seeing greater acceptance. And that probably is also contributing to the higher rates because as people seek help, as they acknowledge their needs, uh, we find out that it's, you know, that it's quite prevalent. Got to have somebody to talk to. Dr. Joshua Gordon, director of the National Institute of Mental Health within the NIH. Doctor, thanks so much for talking to us. If you've been hesitant about the vaccines, would you reconsider if there was a vegan option? GlaxoSmithKline has announced positive results from a phase three trial of its plant-based coronavirus vaccine. It's the first of its kind to reach a stage to try for emergency approval. The vaccine has an overall efficacy rate of 71% against all variants, except for Omicron because it was too new to include. Living plants are used as bioreactors to produce non-infectious protein particles that mimic the native structure of viruses and thus boosts the immune system response to an invading virus. The plant used in this vaccine is a close relative to the tobacco plant. Plant-based vaccines are typically cheaper to make and safer for patients. Why do I think the vegan option comes to Los Angeles first? Probably. You can find this Odyssey original and others on the Odyssey app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher.